it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Ethos, Squarespace, Lightstream, Harry's, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we talked about the scientific community's reaction to the Patterson-Gimlin film. Although several scientific minds weighed in on it, not too many wanted to risk their careers by going too deeply into it. They mostly offered cursory evaluations of the film. The week before last, you heard our bonus episode interview with actor, comedian, and director Yorma Takoni about playing Chaka in the 2009 comedy feature film Land of the Lost, a primate-like character based on a 1970s television show of the same name produced by Sid and Marty Croft. One of the main takeaways from that interview was how incredibly difficult it was for Yorma to put on that costume that no one would even think for a second was anything more than a man in a monkey suit. Not only that, that costume cost $150,000. The point being, imagine the amount of effort required to make a costume as realistic as Patty. Then imagine making it using 1967 technology, keeping in mind that predates the invention of spandex. Tonight, we take the costume conversation much, much further with Hollywood creature costume expert William Bill Munns. He has an extensive background in creating costumes that might rival Patty. But Bill has more than that to talk about. He spent over a decade acquiring access to every known copy of the Patterson-Gimlin film. He used that access and a portable film scanning machine that he built from scratch to gather ultra-high resolution scans of each frame of all of those copies at up to 5K. The film scanner had to be portable because most folks with a copy of the PGF won't let it out of their sight. What Bill learned when he gathered all of this information will astound you, and tonight he's here to tell you about it, dear listener. So, settle in, relax, and get ready to make your own decision about whether or not Patty was a man in a costume. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The thing that mystifies me is that, given how incredible the Patterson film is, somewhere in the last 50-odd years, somebody else should have been taking some kind of footage that was at least close to it, but there's nothing even close. Everything else is almost junk by comparison. Tonight's guest, Bill Munns. Join us tonight for part five of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. And we're back. That we are, and it's good to be back. Tonight is part five of our six-part series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. It's one of the most extensive series we've ever covered, so if you stuck with us this long, we'd like to say thank you 
for writing it out. We knew this was going to be a multi-parter, but we didn't realize how multifaceted it was until we started digging in. A quick note tonight, be sure and visit our store to check out our new pint glasses. We have logo ones there as well as the David Spencer Illustrated Blanket Fortiana ones, and they are pretty cool. Also, when we sold out of the coffee mugs a few weeks ago, we were unable to replenish our inventory because the original colors were all backordered from the manufacturers. So we decided to do another run of two new colors. That's right. And the new mugs are in and available in our store now, if you haven't noticed already. Those colors are black and bright green, and they came out great. You can thank Connor J on our Facebook group for suggesting the green. We thought it actually looked pretty cool, so we went with it. You can find all of this glassware in our store at astonishinglegends.com. Finally, if you haven't already checked it out, download our new favorite podcast app, Himalaya, in your app store. It works on both iOS and Android, and it's so easy to use. So once you get it, search for Astonishing Legends and give us a follow. All right, let's go to our interview with Bill. My name is Bill Munns. I've been analyzing the Patterson-Gimlin film for about 10 years now, but I brought a very unusual background and an unusual collection of skills to the analysis that no previous researcher had. I actually began my career in the motion picture industry in college in Los Angeles uh, as a film student there. And in the course of that film study, I learned pretty much everything in the production range, camera lighting, sound, makeup, editing, assistant director, unit manager, film editor, the whole thing. And I had had experience in just about every aspect of film production. From that foundation, I gravitated toward makeup and then into special makeup effects, the creature monster kind of stuff, and spent a good many years in Hollywood as a freelance artist creating all kinds of special makeup effects, including a lot of characters in full body costumes, creature suits, we call them, and some of them full fur-covered suits, exactly like what a lot of people suspect the Patterson-Gimlin film to represent. From there, in the late 90s, I transitioned over to computer graphics because they were basically taking over a lot of the film industry and a lot of the effects work. And so for the last two decades, I've actually been focusing a lot on computer graphics technology. The reason why this background positioned me uniquely to analyze the Patterson-Gimlin film is, first of all, it is a 16-millimeter film. And a filmmaker, one who's actually shot film, edited it, operated the cameras, been on the set, gone on distant locations, one who actually knows the realities of how films are made, has to make the first assessment of the film itself. The secondary of the film, of course, is the subject figure within it, and a lot of suspicion is that it's a human in a costume. The only person who's properly qualified to analyze that issue and come to any definite conclusion is a person who's actually designed and fabricated and taken out on set and cared for and worked people in such ape suits or other fur-covered costumes. So having a background in the design and the manufacture and the working of those costumes on the set actually is a crucial element for a person who makes an analysis of the Patterson film. The only way you can accurately say this is not a costume is if you've actually built them and you can explain specifically why what we see in the film isn't a costume. The third element that's essential to analyzing the Patterson film is an understanding of computer graphic technology because all 
the proper image analysis of the scanned film frames must be done with the newest technology of computer graphics so that you know how to analyze the data which is within those film frames. And the newest computer graphics technology is ideal for that purpose. So I was rather unusual in that I brought all three of these skills to the question, to the challenge of researching this film, which no researcher before me had ever done. Wow, that was uh, perfectly well put. You can tell you've uh, had to talk about this before. (laughs) (laughs) In light of that, what first motivated you to analyze the PGF? Well, you have to remember now, I was in college when the, the film actually was released. So I was vaguely aware of it when it was first announced to the public. It was in an um, Argosy magazine published in February of 1968. But at the time, even though I was aware of it being announced, I was paying far more attention to the fact that the original movie Planet of the Apes was released that same February. And a few months later, in April, the film 2001 A Space Odyssey was released, which had a sequence of ape-like humans in what's called the Dawn of Man sequence, the very beginning of the film. And because I was learning makeup and I was interested in makeup effects at the time, more of my attention was actually on the ape suits that were designed for Planet of the Apes and Space Odyssey than they were about the Patterson film itself. So I was aware of it at the time, but all of my focus was on the reality of ape suits, ape costumes, and how they're built. And of course, that's absolutely essential if you're going to try to analyze the film. Over the years subsequently, I was always aware of it. It was such a distinctive presence in the whole topic or the whole phenomenon of Bigfoot. The Patterson-Gimlin film has such a unique position in it that one particular still frame of the subject figure looking back at the camera while aggressively striding forward, that one picture literally is the icon for the whole Bigfoot phenomenon. You know, as soon as you show that picture, people know, yeah, Bigfoot. Right. You say Bigfoot, people think of that picture. It is so identified with the phenomenon. So all during the years subsequently when I was working in the makeup effects business, my mind would occasionally go back to the Patterson film because it was so iconic in connection with it. But my interest, oddly enough, wasn't so much in analyzing the film. My interest was more in anticipating maybe I'm going to get a job building a Bigfoot for a movie. If so, I want to have all the skills necessary. But obviously, you know, if I want to do something that's sort of authentic to the the concept that most people think of, I would certainly want to be aware of what this Bigfoot figure in this famous Patterson film looks like. So I would go back to it occasionally for that purpose as well. But it wasn't until um, many, many years later, it was actually only after, about 1987, when uh, I had finished a television commercial for a computer, and they wanted to do a parody of the 2001 Dawn of Man sequence. I designed five ape suits for that particular television commercial for a company called AST Computers, And that gave me an opportunity to work with stretch spandex fur cloth for the very first time. Uh, It was actually only invented and introduced to the industry around 1984. I was able to do this. This was back in 1987, I believe. And once I had the experience working with this spandex cloth that has a four-way stretch to it, and it's just wonderful material, 
I was able to compare it to the reality of the old fur cloth that we had used back in the 60s, 70s, even early 80s. And the old stuff doesn't stretch any which way. I mean, theoretically, a little bit stretches on the bias, that's the diagonal of the weave. But generally speaking, it's like carpet. It's got a very heavy, solid backing behind it. And it just doesn't stretch any reasonable way that resembles the way real skin with hair on it might stretch. So the comparison of the stretch fur cloth and the old-fashioned non-stretch fur cloth stuck in my mind. And then something brought me back to the Patterson film. And in looking at it again, I realized, looking at the back of the neck, the neck behaves exactly like either real fur on a real anatomical body, or it behaves like stretch fur, but it doesn't behave like the old-fashioned fur cloth that was available in the late 1960s when the Patterson film was taken. And that kind of crystallized in my mind that this film probably is not a fake, because what I'm looking at on the neck, just something's happening there that the technology of 1967 could not create, period. I didn't actually formally get into the analysis of the film, however, until around 2008. Oddly enough, I was reading in the Los Angeles Times an article about Daniel Perez, who collects Bigfoot evidence and some footprints and stuff. And so I was just wondering, do these Bigfoot researchers, have any of them ever talked to somebody who actually designed and built costumes? So I contacted the LA Times, the person who wrote the article. He referred me to Daniel Perez. I sent him an email or something, and I just posed the question, have any of your researchers ever really talked to somebody like me who really actually builds costumes? And I was thinking, okay, maybe I can contribute a little bit. Maybe I'll give them a few hours of my time and the benefit of my knowledge, and then I'll just get back to my life. Right. But in researching to talk with this researcher, I went on the internet and I found the Bigfoot forum and found all of the pictures that were there. And I was absolutely astonished at the amount of evidence that was actually available. And so I was drawn into it. And then the more I saw the evidence, the more I realized I can analyze this evidence and I can make a difference. I can contribute something to this that nobody has before. And from that point, I was basically hooked. And it's funny because we were just kind of starting our research when I stumbled across the postings that you had made on a forum with the analysis of the costume. And I'm so glad I would have found your book, but I was not aware of it when you emailed me and told me about it. And it's just such a great example of critical thinking and a very deep, deep analysis that covers, honestly, every possible angle that I think anyone could think of with regard to whether or not that film is depicting someone in a costume. So I commend you for making it something that a a layperson can understand because the costume process, when I started reading about the nature of all the work you have to do, it's more than just being an artist. It seems to me it's almost like a, a knowledge of biology and as well as mechanical engineering in a way to understand the framing and the when you talk about the musculature and all the things you have to do to get that to work right. And then the state of technology in 67, even versus today. And it's a really fascinating book, which we are going to strongly recommend to our listeners to uh, check out, which, by the way, the book is called When Roger Met Patty. And that is by William Munns. And we'll have a link to it for this episode of the show. But 
I mean, the first thing that I was really impressed with, and, and we have covered a lot of topics that are folkloric or legendary in nature, and a lot of times we don't have evidence that we can work with. We have to use evidence that you rightfully so say, well, you know, I just can't count that in this because it's anecdotal or it's eyewitness testimony because we're in frequently covering things where that's all there is, or maybe it happened a long time in the past and there's even less there's only historical accounts, and you don't know where they're coming from. For example, the Jersey Devil. There's some very early stories about the Jersey Devil, and we managed to trace that all down to what seemed like it started in a political row between two opposing leaders in the community, Quakers, and it got just kind of nasty and then devolved into <laughs> what eventually kind of became the Jersey Devil. But in this case, what you say at the beginning of the book is the only thing, even though you do touch on all the theories and the anecdotal stuff, the only thing that matters to you is the empirical evidence. And in this case, that is the film. The film is the hard evidence that we can look at and analyze, which is what you did. Mm -hmm. So I guess the first thing I'd like to do is for our listeners to understand the scope of your work. One of the first things, and I know this is sort of towards the end of your book, but I thought something that you might lay out to them initially that would demonstrate how thorough you were is the frame inventory and the uh, the inventory of the copies and how many stills that you have digitized and scanned. And it seems like fi a lot of it at 5K. Can you talk a little bit about the materials you used to conduct your analysis? It's a curious phenomenon that the current generation of people, most people who are in their teens, 20s, 30s, maybe even in their 40s, they're all part of what we might call the digital generation. And their understanding of technology is generally wrapped up in digital technology. To them, that's just the way the world is. And they don't know of a time before then. It's kind of like people who drive cars and you try to explain, well, you know, in the old days they rode horses and it's like what <laughs> you know, okay oh yeah how does that work you know i mean where do you park your horse you know when you go to the store <laughs> sure. kind of a thing you know or whatever yeah. like that most people don't realize you know the youtube generation that their experience looking at the patterson film is almost always in a digital video form and there's one subtle thing they don't realize and that is that film is normally taken at 24 frames per second. In back in those days, occasionally, uh, if there was no soundtrack to be added, it was taken at 16 frames per second. The standard of video is 30 frames per second. So if you have a film that runs 24 frames per second and you want to show it so that everything appears to be occurring in the same time, the conversion from film to video actually has to add six frames per second yes. to get it up to 30 frames. Now, those frames typically in a telescene conversion are blended. One frame is blended into another. And a lot of people looking at the Patterson film, even if they have a video and they have a, an editing tool so they can do frame grabs of individual frames from the video, they don't seem to realize that one-fifth of the frames they're grabbing are fake frames. They're synthesized to bring it up to 30 frames per second. So they see things in the video and they don't even realize that's not in the original film because the frame blending added it. One example of this is a crazy idea that somebody came up with. It's commonly called the massacre theory. Oh, I, I was going to ask you about this. I'm so glad you just brought it up. I was going to yes, ask someone, someone was looking at it and there was a little white speck in a frame 
And then right before it was kind of a half light speck in exactly the same spot. So this person concluded that what the film had captured was the muzzle flash of a gun shooting at the Bigfoot characters. Somebody was there shooting Bigfoots and massacring them. That's what the Patterson film captured. That's the theory. The problem was that white speck is only on one copy, and it's only in one frame, which is simply a dust speck in the printing. The reason we know this is that in order to understand the integrity of any particular copy of the film, you must actually compare it to other copies, because anything that was on the camera original will convey to every copy. But something which is added in the printing process of an individual copy means that copy will be slightly different in some respect than another copy. But only if you have multiple copies can you compare them to determine that. That's one of the things that no researcher had done before me. Well, in this particular massacre theory, this white speck that supposedly was the gunshot muzzle flash is just one little dust speck on one frame of one particular copy. It was owned by a researcher, John Green. And the half flash that supposedly was reported was a blend frame from the telescene conversion from film to 30 frame per second video. So this theory was based upon a total lack of understanding of the filmmaking process as compared to the video process. And as soon as I analyzed it, because I have background in that and I was able to recognize the truth, that pretty well just kind of blew it out of the water. It just the whole theory fell apart as having no merit because where that speck is not a gun firing, it's just a speck that was on a uh, printed through on the one printing of one copy, isn't on any other copy, and that half frame thing was an artifact of a telescene conversion. A new year full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable: postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, I'm Glendell from Love Glendell, and when I'm working on my art, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. My background, what I did when I started approaching it, immediately what I realized was that no one before had ever actually understood the evidence as film. Now one thing is that we're all working with copies. The camera original itself is missing right now, hopefully will resurface in the future, but at the moment we don't have access to it, so we work with copies. Well, you must analyze multiple copies in order to understand everything about the film because each copy can reveal some things another copy may not. 
Only a filmmaker would actually understand that. Most other people wouldn't. They just have one copy and they think, okay, that's it. They don't realize if they see the copy another way, there's other data that could help them in their analysis. So when I started with this, I first was just trying to get a full-frame copy, a true absolute full-frame, because I wanted to do a stereo photogrammetry analysis to try and reconstruct the Bluff Creek environment, and I needed a full-frame copy to do it. So I went up to Canada where John Green lived and had access to one of his copies, and I did a digital scan of all 940 frames, excuse me, 954 frames of the film, everyone in a 4K resolution. So I did the full scan, but then I found out that his copy actually wasn't true full frame. It was ever so slightly cropped in, maybe about 5% cropped in. So it's like 95% of the picture, but it's not 100%. So I was still looking for another copy that was a true 100% copy of the original. And had to go to another person who had one, which is Patricia Patterson, the widow of Roger Patterson. She had one, and it took a while to get arrangements to get permission from her and go to her house in Yakima and scan her complete copy of the film. And then a few other copies became accessible to me, and I started scanning those. And it built up to the point that I built up an excellent copy inventory, as many known copies as possible, and what is unique or useful about each one. But you have to consider each scan is like 4K or 4,000 pixels across. So we're talking about like three or four megabytes of data, even if it's compressed, like 15, 18 megabytes if it's not compressed. And there's 954 frames of the film. Then you add on multiple copies of the film that are scanned, and sometimes they're scanned in several ways, like sometimes we expose for the creature subject to bring up the highlights and shadows in the subject body anatomy. Sometimes we scan for proper exposure balance on the landscape, looking for possible artifacts in the ground, like maybe even footprints that you might have left behind. So we sometimes will scan a film actually several times. So I ended up with about 35,000 scans at 4K. That's a couple of megabytes each one. And, uh, you know, I've got several hundred gigabytes of data. <laughs> sure. But it is by far the most expansive collection of data related to the film that any researchers ever had. You know, it's just like a hundredfold greater than any other researcher had access to. And part of what I did, I think you mentioned in your question about the frame inventory, one of the things that I did is that I actually checked every single individual frame across multiple copies and numbered them correctly, found out that the traditional frame numbering system is actually off by two frames, found out exactly how many frames there were. From that, I was able to actually analyze how many segments where the film camera was actually started and stopped during the shooting of it. And all of this was derived from all of this data analysis. Now, part of the value of the frame inventory is the fact that anytime someone in the internet community comes up with a frame of the film and says, I was looking at this frame and I think this means that. Well, the first thing that I do is I copy it and I go right to my inventory and I see if it's a true frame or a frame blend. The YouTube generation doesn't understand that. So they think it's a real frame, but it's actually a frame blend of two frames, which means it's basically false data can't be used for analysis. So there may be something in that frame blend that actually has no relevance because it isn't a true image data from the original film. 
But the frame inventory has been tremendously valuable for that so that anytime someone shows me what they think is a frame of the film, I can find out exactly which one it is, and then I can compare it over other copies, and I can tell you if it's a true frame or a frame blend, so whether it is useful for analysis or not. I'm very, very proud of the fact that that's one of my most significant contributions to the whole research effort. Yeah, and I trust you have it well and truly backed up as well, right? It's not just on one hard drive, is it? (laughs) No, it's on quite a few. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. What is your speculation or maybe hunch of what happened to the original film? Um, Okay, here's the story. It's kind of a convoluted one. It's really quite funny. Roger Patterson, of course, had the camera original himself. He made some copies that were full-frame contact prints. He kept one and distributed a few others. He then loaned the original to John Green and Rene DeHinden in late 67, early 68. They took it to Canna West Labs up, I think, in Vancouver, and they did an ectochrome master on an optical printer so that they could do freeze-frame, slow-motion, zoom-in effects on the film in multiple copies. And then the camera original came back to Roger. Then in 71, Roger made a deal with a company in Utah called American National Enterprises, A&E. And they wanted to do a documentary called Bigfoot, Man, or Beast, and they wanted to use Roger's footage. So he loaned them the camera original so that they could print their ectochrome work print uh, masters and their production master off of his camera original, also with an optical printer. And I suspect it was done with a liquid gate printing, which is unusual, because it actually has less scratches. The A&E copies have less scratches than the other versions, even though it was done later and Roger had projected the original a number of times and scratched it up. The only way you can eliminate scratches in printing is with a liquid gate printer. So I suspect they were using a liquid gate optical printer for that. Anyways, A&E kept it, and Roger became progressively more and more ill. He had Hodgkin's lymphoma, a cancer of the lymph glands, that was reoccurring. He had been treated for it back around 64, 65, and was in remission, did the film and other stuff. But then it came back around 70, 71, and sadly, Roger passed away in January of 72. A&E still had his camera original, and the family apparently had no concern or wasn't aware of it. They were dealing with his passing and you know, trying to struggle with how they're going to get on with their lives. So they didn't pay attention to the fact that A&E still had the camera original. Now, A&E apparently, according to my reports, went bankrupt around 1974. And in the bankruptcy, all of their assets, including office furniture and such, were liquidated in uh, an auction. Somebody in Florida bought a lot of the office equipment in that liquidation auction. And when it was delivered to them, they found in one of the file cabinets they bought was the camera original film in a file cabinet they bought. They became the legal owner of it, but they had no legal right to show the film or license the use of the film. In other words, they owned the physical property, but they didn't own the rights to any media use of the film. That was retained still by Patricia Patterson and Bob Gimlin. So this company sent their, this film, realizing though that it was fairly valuable, the original on the Patterson film, they put it into storage with a film vault in Los Angeles. Okay, that was around 1974 or so. 
Now, one of the researchers, Renee DeHinden, convinced Bob Gimlin to file a legal claim to say that he had some claim of ownership to the film. And uh, a judge agreed, and in a judge's ruling, Bob was given 51% ownership of the film, plus the rights to distribute stills from the film. Patricia Patterson, Roger's widow, was given 49%, plus the right to distribute or license the showing of the film itself to any like television or media productions. Renata Hinden, this researcher, bought Bob Gimlin's 51% share of ownership for some token sum, a dollar, $10, maybe something like that, but it was just a token amount. So Renee bought the rights. So then Renee owned 51% of the film. He then went to that film lab that had the original and he showed them that he was 51% owner of the film legally. And he demanded that they release it to him so that he could do some analysis. You said lab, but you mean the storage facility, right? Where it was. Yeah. Okay. So, Renee insisted the storage facility release the owner, the, the possession of the film to him for analysis. He enlisted the aid of a man named Bruce Bonney, who was a photo expert. And together, they did a fairly extensive evaluation of the camera original, including producing 12 high-quality prints, close-up prints of the subject figure in the film on a Cibachrome film stock, which is a very, very brilliant, uh, high-saturation color, uh, high-quality copy stock for photography. So they produced these Cibachromes, which are among the best individual pictures ever done of the subject figure. At some point, though, DeHinden and Bonnie parted ways, and it was reported to be a very, very belligerent, maybe even borderline violent separation of the two. And at that point, the camera original basically disappeared. It was never returned to the photo film vault. We don't know if Rene DeHinden kept it. Officially, he's never said that he did. Unofficially, he's told two people that he's friends of his off the record he had it. But when he passed away about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I'm not sure, something like that, his son inherited all of his things. His son does not seem to have any knowledge of having the original, so we don't know. Another possibility is that Bruce Bonney might have kept it, and he became a reclusive person who moved to Arizona and basically shut out the world and uh, wouldn't talk to any researchers involved with the Patterson film. So we don't know where the camera original is right now. It could be with Bonnie. It could be with Eric DeHinden, Renee DeHinden's son. There's always a chance they actually did return it to the lab, and somebody in the lab who knew what it was and knew the value of it maybe didn't check it in and just took it home instead. Uh That's even a possibility. We're still searching for it. We still are semi-optimistic that we actually will find it, and it will be a, a tremendous discovery if we do actually find the camera original because that film would be considered almost literally a national treasure of sorts. It is so embedded within the whole Bigfoot phenomenon. If the original film could be found and scanned at 4K or higher, what more detail or possible clues could we probably find from a much better scan of the original? Do you think that there is still some information out there? And in what area? Could it be the actual muscle clature of the of the beast or the fur or dispel even more of these rumors about it being a costume? What do you think we could find out if we did get this original? The value of the original is several fold if we can finally get it and actually scan it again. 
you need to understand in old film technology, whenever you start with a camera original film, whether it's a negative or a reversal positive, every time you make a copy, you lose detail and you increase contrast, basically. In terms of losing detail, the reality is simply that your film grains in the emulsion are in a random array arrangement. And every bit of film from film stock to film stock, these grain particles are in different random arrangements. It's not like a digital picture where every single point of light or color, every pixel has an exact location, address, and color value. So you can make a lossless copy, a copy without any loss of detail of any digital image. But on film, it's what we call a lossy medium because when you make a copy, the grain pattern or the grain structure on the copy stock doesn't exactly align with the grain pattern on the camera original. Because it doesn't align perfectly, it doesn't make a perfect copy. Little bits and pieces kind of slightly shift or change their shape, their color, their value, and you lose detail, very simply. The second thing, though, is that when you make a copy, you start to build up a little bit of contrast, which means the darker tones go more dark toward black, the lighter tones go more light toward white, and then when they reach pure white or pure black, then they just clip, they lose all contrast. This is a problem with any copy. So when you're dealing with what we work with, which is mostly like second and third generation copies, there's a fair amount of contrast buildup and there's a fair amount of loss of detail. Now, if we go back to the original, thus we have more detail that is reliable detail, one. Second though, we have less contrast on the body of the subject figure, which means analyzing the anatomy of the subject, the possible motion of the skin, the hair, any musculature underlying, all of that can be better done on the original than it can be on any copy. So in both of those respects, analyzing the original would likely be just a godsend for this particular question. So we are hoping to get it. If I get my hands on it, I'm going to scan it at 8K. <laughs> now, normally for 16 millimeter film, 2K or 2000 pixels across, that's about the same as high definition television. That's as big as you can scan it if you don't want to see the grain. And most people, when they copy a film, don't want to see the grain. They want to see the picture. They want it to look clear. So they never normally scan 16 millimeter above 2K. I went at 4K because I actually wanted to see the grain because that guaranteed I would get as much detail as possible. But if I have access to the original, I plan on scanning it at 6 or 8K because I actually want to get even more of the detail of the individual grains. And then I can actually look at the grain detail on each of the three color emulsion layers, the red, the blue, and the green layer and actually even compare those because oddly enough, the level of detail is actually different on the layers. It's sharper on the red and somewhat on the green, and it's actually terrible on the blue layer. So if you drop it down to a chromatic breakdown of channel, color channels, and you only look at the red channel, or you only look at the green channel, or maybe the red and green together, you actually can see more detail than you can if you have the blue, because the blue actually has got the least and kind of weakens it out. So if I get access to the original, I will be scanning it for all of those purposes. I have a, a Telsin question, actually, that you just brought to mind. And um, 
I understand because a lot of these people don't want to release their copies that you've built a portable rig that you can take and you're scanning on site for them. Yes. And that rig that you've built, you are it's capable of an 8K scan? I'd have to change the camera. Right. In other words, the scanning system uh, actually uses a Canon camera and the current one oh. that I use, 12.2 megapixel, which is a 4K scan 4200 pixels wide if i want to ramp it up to 8k i'd have to go to a canon i can't remember the exact model but it's like a 50 megapixel camera right Mm -hmm. and a 50 megapixel is about 8200 pixels wide you know so that would be 8k so you're scanning with a dslr a high quality okay my next question would be from my days in commercials, whenever we would go to do a film transfer or what we're calling a scan in this discussion as well, we put everything in the bath before we did it so that we wouldn't have any dirt and uh, that sort of thing. Are you doing any kind of bathing on these? Or do you? I would imagine that maybe people might be nervous about that. What do you do with that? Well, there are some lens cleaning uh, cloths, fluids and such like that that can be done. And what I would do is I'd take a lens cleaning cloth and sort of put the film into a set of rewinds just to run it back and forth between two reels. Right. And then I'd wrap the cloth on both sides of the film and then pull it on the take-up rewind, pull it literally through the cloth running down the full length of it, and then go back the other way, reverse it back through, back and forth about 10 or 12 times with a film-cleaning cloth And that has cleaned it up very, very well. I suppose a bath might be a little better, but if I'm going to the person who uh, has the film, that suffices. And because it is literally made for cleaning film, we're assured it's a proper product. And the person who owns the film doesn't get nervous that, oh my God, what if you ruin it or something? Right. So the next thing I'd like to do for the sake of our listeners and those that haven't read your book yet is talk a little bit about the nature of your analysis which we could clearly, I think, do for the next 36 hours, but I'm going to try and just go, (laughs) I'm going to try and abbreviate some of the questions. And and I I guess where I'd like to start with, and one of the things that I really enjoyed reading about in your book was the segments, you know, and as a former editor, this stood out to me and it was something I hadn't really thought about when I had first seen the film. You identified six segments in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about those six segments? Certainly. First of all, um, most people, when they see the complete Patterson film, like on YouTube, they think Roger just turned on his camera, filmed for about a minute, and ran out of film. And they don't realize that he started and stopped his camera six times in that segment. Now, the way that we know we have a camera start and stop is two things. One, if the scene changes suddenly, from one composition to another, that will usually be a camera start or stop. The second thing, though, is that when you start up a a camera, the shutter starts turning right away to open it up for an exposure of the film. But the very first frame, the motor isn't quite up to full speed. It's actually running a little slow. It gets up to full speed around the second frame. Now, if the shutter is turning slower on that first frame, that means it's open for a longer period of time. That means that that one frame is lighter than the rest of the frames in the sequence. Okay, That's what we call a camera start indicator. That first frame is slightly overexposed. Now, when you edit a film, you normally chop off 
the camera starts. Usually, of course, you've got a slate and a few other things before action starts, and you chop all that off. But even if you're doing a documentary and you weren't slating anything, uh, most of the time when a film is edited, some little part of the front is chopped off, and you lose that camera start. But for Roger's film, we have camera starts for each one, so we know that is actually stopping the camera and starting it again without any editing. And from that analysis technology, we've been able to determine that there actually are six segments to the film. And what happened in each one of them is actually very, tells a very curious story unto itself. When Roger started walking toward the subject figure and turned his camera on while he was walking, that itself was unusual, after approximately five seconds, and I say approximately because we don't know his exact camera speed, we know how many frames it was to the stop, but we don't know in running time whether it was four and a half to, say, six seconds. So let's call it five. It's 90 frames specifically. Anyways. At that point, he's been walking forward for about five seconds, and the camera stops. And then he starts it right up again, and the subject figure has taken a few steps, and the composition's a little different, which means he was still walking forward when the camera went off, and he realized it was off, and he turned it back on. Then it goes into segment two. He's still walking forward toward his subject, and still going after it, and it's starting to disappear behind some uh, landscape uh, foreground debris and he gets to the point where he comes up to the creek that separated him from the area where the subject figure was and now he's got to walk across the creek well he's not going to walk across the creek while he's filming it's almost guaranteed he's going to fall down doing that so what roger had to do was shut down his camera but when he was standing on the bank before he crossed the creek kind of looking down on it figuring okay where do i cross a curious thing happened where his finger pulled down the trigger mechanism on the camera, but as soon as it engaged the motor uh, or the spring drive that drives the motor, as soon as it engaged to start turning it, he let go of it and it stopped. So it's literally only two frames on this third segment. Now, a person would never do that deliberately. In fact, even to try to pretend to do it willfully is actually very difficult because you have to pull it down to engage the mechanism and let it go instantly. So that's the kind of thing that a person would do if he was holding his finger on the trigger mechanism of the camera, but he suddenly lost his balance. Like he stepped down the creek bank, the ground gave way, his foot started to slide down, he was off balance, and his finger just pulled down on that let go without him even realizing it to get this third frame thing. That's something that no filmmaker would ever do deliberately, one of the indicators why the film is real. When he gets to the fourth segment, he's crossed the creek and he started to walk up the other bank. And when he's walking up the bank, he actually sees that his subject figure is still there because when he was crossing the creek, he can't see the figure. He doesn't know where she is, what she's doing, whether she's gone into the woods, whether there's others there, whether she's going to come back at him and ambush him. He doesn't know. When he walks up the bank, and he's halfway up, and he can see over the edge of the creek bank, he can see she's still there, she's still walking away, and she's still in completely open country. So even before he gets to the top of the bank, he starts the camera again, desperate to get a good shot. And we can tell that by actually analyzing that in those first few frames of that segment four, the camera actually raises up slightly. A foreground element compared to a background element changes its 
its height perspective, which means he's actually moving the camera upward. Then he runs around this crazy little S-shaped branch and comes charging toward her to get a position where he thinks he can get a better shot. But most of the time in this segment four, when he's running, his camera's actually pointed toward the ground. It's kind of pretty much a useless segment about 40 frames long. Then he gets stops the camera. He plants himself down when he's got a clear field of view of the subject, nothing interfering with him, and he wants to get the best possible shot that he can. So when he's planted himself on the ground, holding himself absolutely steady, he turns the camera on, and he now gets the best segment of the film, commonly called the look back, because he's holding the camera steady. He's just panning it as she moves along. And that's when she actually looks back at the camera at him and then keeps right on going. And then after that, he again stops the camera and runs forward to a new position and then finally starts it again. And she walks off into the woods and he runs out of film. So those are the actual six segments. But our ability to analyze those segments actually tells us a lot about the behavior of the cameraman. And the behavior that it describes is not the kind of thing that a person would do if they were willfully filming a deliberate planned production of a hoax. It's exactly the kind of thing that a person would do in a spontaneous, unexpected, uncontrolled, almost panicked situation of trying to desperately get footage, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So everything about the movement and the different segments is very, very compelling, even in its own right, that what we see here is a truly unrehearsed, unplanned, unexpected, spontaneous, and rather desperate attempt to film something extraordinary. Wow. And one of the loose ends that you seem to be a little puzzled about was the rotational frame that had the rotational blur on it. (laughs) Oh, that one. Yeah. What do you think happened there? That's frame number one of segment three, this two-frame trigger slip of the camera. The strange thing about it is that it has motion blur in most of the frame. And the motion blur is rotational because normally when you move a camera up, down, or left, right, the motion blur is a straight line in the direction of whatever direction you're moving the camera. So let's say you move the camera suddenly left, right, real fast. Anything that has a very distinct light or dark value to it kind of blurs to the left or blurs to the right. But it's a straight line usually. But when the blur line is actually curved, then the camera is actually being rotated. And yet the upper right corner of the frame is almost completely sharp. Normally, camera blur is what we call global. It occurs over the entire frame. So if you blur the camera, everything in it's going to have basically the same amount of blur and in the same direction. But in this case, this upper right corner is sharp, and the rest of the body of the camera actually is blurred with this rotational blur, which is utterly bizarre. That can occur because the shutter, most people don't actually understand the mechanism of a camera shutter. They kind of think that it's like, okay, poof, it's open and poof, it's closed, you know, all at once. Well, it's actually not. It's a rotating thing that blocks the light coming into the shutter, but it rotates and it curves around. So it starts at the top at one corner and curves around through it and then curves down into it. So when it starts blocking one area, the other area is getting exposed. So different parts of the frame are actually exposed at slightly different times. It's a very, very subtle thing. Most of the time you can never see the results of it, but occasionally, depending on how photography is done, you can see evidence of this 
where different parts of the frame have actually different amounts of motion blur to them. It can occur. And in this instance, it did occur on that frame. And the only thing I can think of that can possibly explain it is that when the shutter was opening up, when his finger was pulling it down and letting it go, which suggests to me that he lost his balance, he actually rotated the camera, but he rotated it in a way where the center of rotation actually was literally right through the area of the lens going to the film gate, because that seems to be the center of the rotation right there. So he's holding this camera, but he's literally twisting it clockwise while he is losing his balance and pulling down this on the trigger and letting it go instantly. All of that suggests to me that basically he was, he literally lost his balance temporarily and he moved around trying to restore his balance with no awareness of what the camera was doing. So that particular frame, questionable frame, is part of the two-frame quick start and stop? Yes, it's okay. the first of those two frames. Hi, I'm Sam, and when I'm not out hunting for Sasquatch, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. This is one of the few questions I had that you might perceive as a little bit combative to your point of view, but I just was curious about this. I felt like you were making assumptions about Roger's skill set with regard to camera operation, because my impression of him, and I guess this is, of course, based on the anecdotal hearsay and that sort of evidence, is that he wouldn't necessarily have been very familiar with being a camera operator. Can you explain why you you ascribed? Because I feel like sometimes you were describing what a professional director or a professional camera operator might have done in a given circumstance with regard to making this film. And I, I'm just curious how you would overlay that stuff onto Roger based on what we know about him. Certainly. Most people do not realize that aside from the Patterson film itself, there's a tremendous amount of related footage that also is important in the analysis. And one of the things which has never been publicly distributed, most people don't even know that it exists, is the fact that Roger was trying to produce a documentary. So aside from the Patterson film, Roger did a lot of other filming of different things, hoping to make his documentary. He actually got his first experience handling a, a movie camera around 1960 or 61. In a book, The Making of Bigfoot, a man who was at Shepard's Camera Store talks about having to tell Roger how to use a movie camera, and it recalls it being somewhere around 1960, 61. So in 6061, Roger knew nothing about movie cameras. But by 1967, he was actually a fairly accomplished cinematographer or camera operator. And we know this because there's another large reel of film that's actually about 650 feet long that was in the possession of his widow, Patricia Patterson. It was given to Chris Murphy, another researcher, who passed it on to me for analysis. And what it is, is other footage that Roger filmed when he was doing his documentary before he did the Patterson film. Is this the Ape Canyon incident? No. Uh, well, I don't think there's anything in there which is Ape Canyon, but there's other footage that he filmed, including one segment where he's on camera himself walking around. Right. There's a short segment where he's interviewing a... Uh, 
man, uh, Fred, somebody, Fred oh, Beck. Fred I Beck. Fred yes. Beck. There's also footage of his VW van that says Bigfoot Expedition 1967. <laughs> he's got a little sign on the top of his VW van, and he's got that in his footage. There's a segment actually sitting in the, the car, literally driving the van down some small road. I used to have a VW van back then, so I know what the dashboard looks like, and this is a dashboard of a VW van, and he's in the car with the camera running like that. Well, in this 650 feet of footage, Roger uses both Kodachrome film and Ektachrome film, so he has experience with both of them. He uses several different types of cameras because cameras have an identification mark that they leave embedded in the film that allows you to look at the footage and in some instances, you know what kind of camera was used, sometimes right down to the brand and the model. So looking at that, I can tell that Roger used several different types of cameras. Looking at the film, I can tell that there are some points where Roger actually used a zoom lens as well as a standard fixed lens or a prime lens. And on the zoom lenses, there are some where I can measure the distance or the difference in the, the size of the picture from the zoom out to the zoom in position and the change in the picture is nearly 10 to one. Now that indicates an ingenue 12-120 zoom lens for 16 millimeter. That's a pro rig. Okay. No amateur ever gets his hand on a camera with an ingenue 12-120 lens. I used that as a film student in college. And so I know from example, that's strictly pro equipment. And he is using that also. So we look at this other footage of Roger's documentary work, and we can see that, one, he's familiar with both ectochrome and Kodachrome film stocks. Two, he's familiar with a variety of different types of cameras. Third, he's familiar with a variety of lenses, including a purely pro-equipped 12-120 zoom. This is not an amateur cinematographer. This is not your average home movie guy we're talking about. This is a person who over the years leading up to 67 did become a serious camera operator. So my assumptions throughout and my analysis are based on that. Great. That was a great answer. Forrest has a question. Yeah, because there was talk of a docudrama specifically that, as described, dealt with some stories from the, you know, South western part of Washington State, specifically around Ape Canyon, that that would include right. the Fred Beck footage or the, the, the stories. And, you know, apparently Roger was going to kind of stage a little bit about it, which would be told in uh, reminiscences of these characters who were actually on a Bigfoot trip, but basically dramatizing certain aspects of these stories. And then there was talk of him doing what sounded to me like a more straightforward documentary, are these one and the same thing, or are these two separate film projects? Well, I suspect at the time Roger hadn't committed to one over the other. Mm. I think that he was actually exploring both possibilities and accumulating footage whenever he could that might serve either type of a documentary production concept. So he probably was exploring both. He was doing interviews with people who'd had encounters or experiences or wanted to describe, uh, you know, things that they know or are aware of. And he was also doing something which was potentially just kind of a story in itself, a fabricated story. The six cowboys out in the woods and something happens to them kind of a thing. So he was basically, as much as I can tell, he looked like he was exploring both options. 
in the way he was approaching it. And then when he finally got enough footage to make one as opposed to the other, then he'd simply go that route. That is my assumption or interpretation of what he's doing based upon all the film evidence that we have. Right. That was kind of my impression as well, is that he was, because it's funny, I know, Scott and I both do, but know people like this who go out and have an idea for some kind of film, but they have uh, a lot of drive to get something on film or just go out and, and shoot some test footage and they start collecting it before they actually know what they're going to do with it. So that does not surprise me. But what I was wondering, because there is some speculation that if he was going to do a docudrama involving mm-hmm. these areas in the Mount St. Helens area and, and also Bluff Creek recapturing or dramatizing some of these stories, that he would have to have an ape costume at some point But there is no footage of him ever having one of his friends or associates dress up in an ape costume or that he'd actually acquired one for that purpose yet, is there? No. Okay, first of all, just in terms of general terms of documentary filmmaking, any person with an intent of making a documentary on a subject like that would responsibly, professionally, and normally contemplate acquiring some type of a costume and putting a person in it and filming footage to recreate descriptions of encounters. So instead of just talking heads, you know, the camera's just on the guy saying, well, this is what happened to me. Right. Because that's not visual enough for the the production. Any responsible producer would plan for it if their budget allowed, they would go ahead with the idea of finding a costume, finding a person to wear it, going out in the woods and recreating it. So if Roger did that, which I suspect he did, it would be a perfectly normal and reasonable thing. It has no indication that, oh, that proves he's trying to create a hoax. No, any normal, honest documentary filmmaker would do that. Mm -hmm. That actually has a lot of potential to potentially explain both the Philip Morris costume controversy. Maybe he actually did buy a costume. From Philip Morris for that purpose. It also possibly explains Bob Hieronymus claiming that he wore Roger's costume because he could have been the one that Roger used to do some type of a recreation. So in theory, it, that idea could explain both Hieronymus and Philip Morris, and still the PGF itself is authentic. Yeah, as far as evidence, though, of it happening, the only evidence that we have, we have no one who, other than Bob Hieronymus, who will say yes, Roger had a costume and I wore it kind of thing. Nobody else has ever come forward and said, yeah, Roger had a costume. The only other evidence that we have is a letter written by a man named Harry Kemble, who was with a film production company, Something Eagle Productions. He had worked at Canna West Laboratories back in 1967 or 68. And he says that Roger came into the lab with a buddy of his. and They had some film footage of a guy in an ape suit. And everybody looked at it, and they all laughed at how silly it was. It wasn't at all convincing. Now, this guy, Harry Kemble, says it's the Patterson film. Now, the problem is, though, he says the camera stock was high-speed ectochrome, and we know for certainty Roger's film was Kodachrome. So he's wrong on this film stock. Second, Harry, being a lab person, said the film looks like it was processed in hot soup, which is a lab term for overdeveloping film to compensate for underexposure, to bring the exposure back up to a normal level. Other ways of referring to it, sometimes, at least when I was in college, we simply called it pushing the film. Yes. yes. 
fill the lab, push it one stop. That right. means they would overdevelop to lighten it what would be presumably one stop lighter. You do that if you're shooting and it's kind of dark and you open your lens all the way and it's still kind of dark and you're not really getting the best exposure you want, then you write on your film can when you send it to the lab, push one stop or push two stops. And the lab will over-process to try to bring the exposure up. The problem with pushing film is that it increases the grain structure and the film becomes tremendously grainy. The Patterson film is not grainy. It is the most perfect grain structure you're ever going to see on a 16 millimeter film. So again, that's not the film Harry's talking about is not the PGF. Third, he talks about Roger zooming in and zooming out like he's trying to pretend, you know, he's desperately trying to film something real and he's trying to zoom in and zoom out. And when you zoom in on something to go into full telephoto, if your focus isn't perfectly set, it actually goes out of focus and then you have to turn the focus ring to get it back into focus. That's an old cameraman's trick when you want to focus a zoom lens eyeball. You zoom out or zoom into the fullest telephoto, get your focus perfect in full telephoto, and then you zoom back and it's always perfect going back. It's one of the funny things about camera optics. Anyways, Harry's describing a zoom lens. Roger didn't have a zoom lens on the Patterson film. And there's one other thing in the notes somewhere that suggested that he thought the film was maybe an Aeroflex and Roger's film was a Kodak K100 camera. So this guy, Harry Kimball, says, yeah, Roger had a guy in an ape suit and we saw the footage. Great. But when he describes the footage, everything he describes about it does not match the PGF film. So he is not talking about the PGF film he saw. Now, here's where it gets curious. When you go back to Roger's other documentary footage, Roger shot ectochrome as well as Kodachrome, and Harry said it was an ectochrome film stock. Second, the Fred Beck sequences that Roger shot, the film is so grainy that when I scanned it and looked at it, it scared me. It was so grainy. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why. Then when I saw the Harry Kimball letter, and he talked about Roger had his ectochrome pushed in the lab, processed in hot soup, he says, which increases the grain structure. Here is evidence of some of Roger's footage with more grain structure than the film should have. The film was pushed. Third, Harry Kimball talks about Roger zooming in and zooming out. On Roger's other footage, he's using a zoom lens on the camera. So everything Harry Kimball described, Roger is doing, but he's not doing it on the PGF film. Mm. He's doing it on his other documentary stuff. So when you consider all of that together, I think that Harry actually saw the footage Roger took of Bob Hieronymus in his nape suit that he got from Philip Morris. And they shot it. They looked at it. They thought it was laughable. So they just put it on the shelf and forgot about it. <laughs> and no one knows where that is now, I, I take it. No, nope, unfortunately, no one does. I actually asked Patricia... <laughs> One time in a letter, if she knew anything about this or by chance even had any footage like that, she came back to me with a very emphatic, absolutely no, I've never seen it. Roger never took it. I know nothing about it. Wow. But he could have done it and not even showed it to her. I don't know how involved she was with the film production at the time. Right. But it would be an absolute wonder if we could find that. Because actually, it would be a wonderful way of authenticating the Patterson film, because it would show you how obviously fake a fake film actually is. Bill, you just completely stole the thunder of my explosive theory I was going to do at the end of this series. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we are thinking on the exact same lines. 
uh, because uh-huh. that's kind of what we came to. And I did after reading your book and looking at everything else we've looked at. Yeah, I think Bob was in a costume. I think they were either rehearsing or they actually shot something that that's been lost and we've never seen it. Or the thing about that is and then in a way, everybody is kind of telling the truth. They're either confused about what film they were in, like maybe Bob can't remember or he's still bitter because he didn't get paid for the day he was going to do or whatever. With regard to the anecdotal stuff, which I know is not something that you necessarily want to elaborate on, but with regard to it, that what you just said kind of makes everybody's story work in a way, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. It does in in a way that's actually quite splendid. Yeah. There's even a little more to it that I can add. In other words, I do think, yes, that Roger probably got a costume from Philip Morris. So if Morris remembers selling one to Patterson, I think that may actually be correct. I actually do think Bob Hieronymus wore a costume for Roger and the Roger filmed it. I think that actually happened. So in that sense, I think Bob Hieronymus could pass a lie detector test because I think he really did get in a ape costume and perform for Roger's camera. Now, what most people don't realize, this is one of the subtle things that requires a person who's actually been there, done that in the industry and such. What most people don't realize is that if you are being given some kind of a creature costume to wear and you get in it and you walk around in it while somebody's filming, First, you don't actually know exactly what you look like in that costume unless you can stand in front of a full-length dressing mirror, which obviously if they went out in the woods, there's no mirror for Bob to see what he looks like. So he wouldn't even know exactly what he looked like oh, yes. on the footage of him. Uh-huh. Second, when you're in that costume, especially if it's got slightly big feet, the only thing you're concerned with is not falling down When you're walking, especially on uneven ground, and a lot of the area in the woods is somewhat uneven, you're looking straight forward at where you're going, or you're looking down at where your feet are going to make sure you don't trip over a rock or a log or a little gully that your foot's going to hit it on an angle and you're going to fall over. That's what you're concentrating on. You're not concentrating on the scenic environment around you. You're looking at literally where you're walking. Third, if you're walking sideways as patty was and roger's shooting what's behind you you're not looking at you have no idea what the scenery looks like behind you so all of this adds up to the fact that if you perform in a costume for somebody on camera you actually don't have a clue what the footage looks like now it's entirely possible for bob that originally back in 67 when patterson filmed the stuff at bluff creek and they started publicizing it, he could go right to Bob and say, Bob, it's not your footage. Now, Bob doesn't know what his footage looks like. So he could be thinking, well, okay, Roger said that's not my footage, so okay, it's not my footage. But little by little after Roger passed away and the the legend of the whole thing kind of evolved and such, Bob's memory could evolve. Memories actually do this. A lot of scientists who do research on memory and the the reliability of it, have validated that memories evolve. So Bob's memory could have evolved from, well, Roger said it's not me in the footage, 
to, I don't know, I'm just wondering, what if that's me? Okay, a lot of people are saying the film's a fake. Well, if it's a fake, then that is my footage. And little by little, year after year after year, all of this mental gymnastics of, is that me, is it not me, is the film real, is it not real? As soon as Bob gets to a point where he thinks, okay, a lot of people are saying the film's a fake, and they know what they're talking about, so maybe they're right, it's a fake. If so, then that's probably my footage. So he finally gets to the point in the 90s, like 25 years later, where he considers talking to Greg Long for the Making of Bigfoot book. And at that point, he may have sincerely believed that was his footage. So he could take a lie detector test and pass it with flying colors because in his mind, he thinks what he's saying is true. He did a lie detector test on TV, Yeah, right? he did. Yeah. And apparently it's reported he passed it. Yeah. You know, polygraphs are not 100% reliable. Um, that's part of the usual skeptical argument of why the film's supposed to be a fake. But when you look at it in this context, the fact that a person in a costume doesn't have any idea what their footage looks like. It's entirely possible over the years his memory could evolve to the point that he could sincerely believe that was his. Right. In a way, it pulls all these elements together so you don't have to say one's true and one's false. On each of these elements, okay, this is like 95% true what Bob's thinking. This is like 80% true what Philip Morris is saying, but it's still 100% true what Roger did and what he claims that the film is authentic. Right. You know, it's not 100% Roger and 0% the other guys. I want to circle back on that, but I want to ask you something else first, because we've been talking a while now, and uh, I don't think we've made this clear, you know, all of us know, because we've read your book and everything, but there were a lot of things about, again, your analysis of the idea of it being a costume that I thought were particularly fascinating, and I'm glad you brought up the analysis you did of the shadows and the passage of time, because I think that's really compelling. The other thing that I thought was really compelling was how you described Patty's head and how you can only add to a head and not subtract from it, a human head in a mask. And that, mm -hmm. and so in that case, if you were going to have a, a brow that recedes directly above the eyes, and forgive me for not using proper terminology here, but if you're going to have that, the only way to fit a human head in there, because our foreheads are more vertical, is to make the head of the costume much bigger if you wanted to pull that off. And it's right. your assessment that with Patty, that it's just not possible for a human head to be inside of the head that you see on Patty. Well, let me say, in the motion picture industry, from the time when gorillas became known to the scientific world and to the general public, which was the early 30s, when they started bringing gorillas back from Africa and the King Kong, the original one, came out. And then Olson, with wildlife photographers, came back to America with wildlife footage of real gorillas in the wild in Africa. From that time, the 1930s, the general public and Hollywood has been obsessed with gorillas, okay? And trying to make a real-looking gorilla has been a maddening challenge for everyone who's ever attempted it. The early ones are just, I mean, they're garbage. <laughs> they just look like clownish characters, really. Right. The first person who actually tried to do it right, it's a guy named Charlie Gamora. He was a makeup artist, sculptor, painter, an actor, performer, a truly remarkable man, and he was an incredibly gifted artist. He made a gorilla suit for a 1941 movie called uh, Murder in the Rue Morgue, I think, and it's astonishing how good he did it. But the only way he could make an 
even semi-believable gorilla head was to make it absolutely huge relative to the human head inside so that he could thrust out the mouth and thrust out the brow area and the eyes would be deep set. The forehead would slope backward instead of going straight up like a human forehead does. And he did everything he could to try to make a human body fit into a gorilla costume. And a gorilla's anatomy is just plain different. And so he had to cheat. He had to change proportions, adjust things. And the head becomes very, very large compared to the human head. Okay, after Charlie Gamora, then we have Janos Prochaska in the 60s, who was the go-to guy who actually designed his own costumes and wore them, performed on them in films. And for a while, he was the man. Then we look at John Chambers' work on the Planet of the Apes, 1967. We look at Stuart Freeborn's Amazing Apes in 2001, A Space Odyssey, 1968. Then we go into Rick Baker, who became probably one of the greatest gorilla makers of all time, maybe the best. And starting from the early gorilla suit, well, actually from his King Kong 1976, going to his Sydney suit and the Incredible Shrinking Woman, going to the work that he did on uh, Gorillas in the Mist, and of course he did Harry and the Hendersons and all of that. You look at all of these incredibly talented people. I mean, these we're talking about geniuses. We're not talking about just people who are talented. We are talking about full-blown geniuses spending years trying to solve this problem. How do you make a perfect ape suit? And all of these geniuses have never been able to do it because you can't make a head on a human that looks like some kind of primal ape and make it small. You have to make it big enough to cheat the shape in proportion. Now, if all of these geniuses in the last 80 years can't solve that problem, why would we think an ex-rodeo cowboy who has no demonstrated experience in creature making of any kind, why do we think he could have solved the problem that all these geniuses with literally millions of dollars of budget and huge crews who are also brilliant people to support them and make it happen. Why can't any of those people do it? The simple reality is that Patty's head is too small for almost any kind of a mask or shape that is functional that you can put on a human so that they can actually put in the costume, walk around, and do the thing. Hi. My name's Neil from the band Epic Season, and when I'm not out at the high seas searching for the Portland, Maine ghost ship, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. I think another point that you made that also was really compelling was talking about how when Patty turns her head, there's no fabric bunching up or you don't see any kind of evidence of normal telltale signs of a costume on the neckline or anywhere like that. And this was prior to the invention of spandex, because you suggested in the book that now you might be able to do that. But back then, it just there was no plausible way to have it look as good as it looks, right? Absolutely not. Yes. The other question I wanted to ask you about is we found some sources that indicated that both Stan Winston and Rick Baker might have uh, poo-pooed the idea of it being anything more than a costume. There's a quote from Winston saying, it's a guy in a bad hair suit. Sorry. 
And if my if one of my colleagues created this for a movie, he would be out of business. And Rick Baker supposedly yeah. said on Geraldo Rivera's Now It Can Be Told, it looked like cheap fake fur and, you know, made a reference to John Chambers. What do you think about those two uh, giants weighing in that way on it? First of all, I have the utmost respect for both of them. They were both geniuses. I didn't know both of them personally. So, and then I know their work as individuals, not just the big companies that they put their name on, where they got like 50 people in the shop making them look good. These two were certifiable geniuses in their own right when they were just working alone. What they did is absolutely astonishing. So let me say right off the bat, I have the utmost respect for both of them and their awesome talents in the makeup effects business. As far as Rick Baker, I understand he and a guy named Bob Burns, who also was a gorilla man and made and performed in gorilla costumes, they got a copy of the film somewhere maybe in the late 70s, maybe early 80s, I'm not sure. But based on what I've heard, it sounds like all they had was a copy of the film they could throw up on a moviola. Now, if they saw just a full-frame copy of the film on a standard moviola, Patty is literally head to toe, maybe three quarters of an inch high right. on that moviola screen. Doing an analysis of that's nearly impossible. Also, on a moviola, the only thing you can do is run it forward, run it backwards, and if you have a variable speed motor and you're not interlocked with a sound motor that locks into 24, then you can kind of run it a little faster, a little slower, but that still doesn't allow you to do a truly formative analysis. The technology, wouldn't, regardless of Rick Baker's skill, that technology would not allow a proper analysis running it on a moviola. Okay. Gotcha. Second is the fact that I know Rick commented on that Geraldo interview where he says that the fur didn't quite look right. Now, the problem with that is that on 16 millimeter film, it doesn't have enough resolution in the film image to be able to clearly distinguish any type of fur cloth. So I suspect, with no disrespect to Rick, I suspect that he was kind of stretching in his appraisal on that because you can't actually look at the Patterson film and distinguish anything which is true fur texture. And without that, plus the fact that he was probably looking at copy and copy may have had copy bloom, and the copy bloom, the contrast shift, makes the light-dark values on the fur more contrasty than it would have been on the original or would have been in real life. And hair, artificial hair as opposed to real hair, has a slightly different sheen to it. He might have mistaken this copy bloom for the sheen of artificial hair, but it's the fault of the film. It's not the fault of the fur being photographed. I've never been able to talk to Rick. The problem with Rick's analysis is that he gives you a few lines to say, I think this because this because this. Well, if we say, okay, this is an expert and we're asking for this expert witness's analysis, we need more than a few sentences to be able to give credibility to an expert witness's analysis. We need to know what material did they actually look at? How did they look at it? What analysis techniques did they use? How did they perform the analysis? Did they actually photograph real fur, like a bear hide and then artificial fur, and then look at them both on 16 millimeter film and see, can you actually tell the difference between the two? Did anybody run a test like that? No. So the problem is, okay, Rick offered an opinion. Yes, he was of the opinion that the film was a fake. 
but we can't take his analysis as being a true expert analysis without all of the substantiating documentation of how the analysis was done. Lacking that, all we can say is, okay, fine. In Rick's opinion, he thought it was a fake. Fine. But it's his opinion. It's not considered an expert analysis because it doesn't have the documentation that allows us to observe how the analysis was done. Okay, that's Rick. With Stan, Stan was a brilliant genius, but Stan was also a showman of the worst kind. Stan did everything in a grand way. He was always conscious of the public relations of the business. And Stan, unfortunately, made a mistake when he was asked to analyze footage of something called the alien autopsy. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you know about it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Stan was asked to analyze it, and they took it to him and a few of his key lieutenants at his Stan Winston studio, and they showed the alien autopsy to him. And when Stan was talking about it, he was doing an honest analysis. He said, look at this. This is not the way we do this. This is unusual. That's more like real skin. And he didn't come out and endorse it and say, absolutely, this is a real alien being autopsied. But he was very responsible analyzing what was being done. And when he concluded, he said, well, if it's a fake, whoever did it, they've got a job waiting for them in my studio. I'll hire them in an instant. (laughs) Well, then the film was actually shown on television, and it was revealed to be a fake. And a lot of other makeup artists in the business were chiming in saying, are you kidding me? I mean, why didn't Stan spot it for the fake it was the moment he saw it. I mean, why did he go through all that analysis? I mean, man, I looked at it and I knew it was a fake in five seconds. These other makeup artists actually embarrassed Stan Winston because he did a careful analysis of the film instead of just dismissing it instantly as a fake. Well, Stan learned his lesson. If you don't want your reputation hurt, somebody shows you something weird on film, just dismiss it as a fake right off the bat, insult it, ridicule it, and you look brilliant. Right. That's what Stan was doing with the Patterson film. But it's because of industry PR. It wasn't a formative analysis. Well, and the other thing I thought was interesting that you pointed out, too, was that there was also a culture back during the time period when the film was shot of nobody wanting to admit professionally that they don't know how something was made, because that's not good either. Yes, that's all part of it. You show something you think is a fake, you have to denounce it absolutely and immediately. Somebody shows you something you can't figure out, you have to bluff and pretend, oh yeah, I know exactly how that was done, and I could do it better. You had to do that in that business to be competitive during that golden age of makeup, because there was a constant demand for newer, better, novel, innovative techniques being done. And anytime somebody did something and the audience loved it, they'd go run into the person they want to hire and say, how did they do that? And you have to give them an answer. Even if you actually don't know how it was done, you have to pretend you do. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. There's a, a few more questions I wanted to ask you. One of them would be, who do you feel like has done the best in your mind, biological or anthropological analysis of the idea of Patty being a primate? I'm not familiar with any one person that I would say has done the best analysis, so I actually can't endorse any other researcher. I do have some theories of my own of exactly what she might be, and they actually kind of disagree with some of, you know, some of the other people. Hmm. I, I sort of subscribe to my own theory hmm. and don't actually endorse others. Are you willing to uh, share those now, or would you rather keep them to yourself? Yeah. Basically, 
given the, the humanistic form of the body and the bipedal walk, I assume that it's something related to the human lineage. Some people think Gigantopithecus, but what we know of Gigantopithecus, the giant prehistoric nine-foot-tall ape from Asia from a couple of million years ago, was that it was probably a quadruped, and so it wasn't bipedal. Because Patty is clearly a bipedal ape, I suspect that she is somehow associated to the human ancestry after humans became bipedal, which would be after Lucy and Afarensis, mm -hmm. maybe going into like Homo habilis and such like that. But when I look at the shape of Patty's head, the closest shape that comes to mind is a type of human ancestor. Used to be called um, Australopithecus boisei. Now it's, uh, I believe, referred to as Paranthropus boisei. Boisei was a skull that was found in Olduvai Gorge. I think it's about a million... 200,000 years old, something like that. But it had a head shape where you had this vertical face that goes up from the mouth, the nasal bridge, the eyes, the brow. And then literally it makes a right turn or a left turn going almost straight backward. So there's no cranium going up the way humans do. Right. I mean, right, right. after the brow, it's just straight back. And there's a small sagittal crest there, which anchors very powerful jaw muscles. I think that possibly a descendant of Australopithecus or Paranthropus boisei might be the ancestral form for what we see in the Patterson film. Another possibility is very, very early Neanderthal, because Neanderthal had a body proportion very similar to her with a leg that has what's called a low crural index. It's a relationship of the upper leg and the lower leg, and we rarely see that on humans today, but some of the Neanderthal had it, and Patty definitely has the same relationship. And so my particular theory is that somewhere in the human lineage, maybe Boisei or maybe Neanderthal, there was an offshoot where the full body hair, which had pretty much diminished, the follicles that produce hair are still on the body, but the hair changed from colored and long to colorless and very short, terminal hair. It's called vellus hair. And we actually have it pretty much over our whole body. Well, somehow in one of these ancient lineages, the gene that makes the hair grow robustly and pigments it, that kicked back in and produced a condition that in humans is called hypertrichosis. Basically, once again, the body is virtually covered in hair head to toe. I suspect in this human lineage of Boisei or Neanderthal, Somebody had this happen. This gene kicked in. The person became utterly hair-covered. That probably caused them to be ostracized from their community because they look so weird. And that might have, with that particular one, breeding and eventually inbreeding. So it's ancestors who carry the gene. Finally, that became a dominant gene. And this lineage with this hair over their body was kind of a separate lineage that split off somewhere from the human lineage and became basically a feral human. Given the fur over the entire body, they were much better equipped to explore and live in northern climates where it was much colder during the winter and they had no problem surviving because they had this fur-covered body. That's my theory. Next question for you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, because you uh, know so much about the film, about the processing and that, and that film timeline that a lot of people who are skeptical of this being anything other than a hoax really fixate on. Do you have an idea of how you think the processing might have gotten done? Let's go through the mechanics, first of all. One, we know it was filmed on Kodachrome film stock, and very, very few labs processed Kodachrome. 
aside from the actual Kodak laboratories where there were five or six around the country, there were a few private labs that were licensed by Kodak to do Kodachrome processing. One of them was in Seattle and operational in 1967. So in theory, that could have been the lab. Second, we know for a fact that when a lab has a roll of Kodachrome film, it takes only one hour to go from the time they thread it up into the dark room and hook it up to the leader chain that's going to go in through the, the processing, run it through the full processor, do everything, bring it out, dry it off, everything out of the, the processors, roughly one hour. Okay, so we only need one hour of this lab time to run the film. Now, the film was generally reported to have been filmed Friday on October 20th around noon, one o'clock. It was reported to have been taken to Akarta, to an airport there, and flown up to Roger's brother-in-law, Aldi Outley, in Yakima, Washington, somewhere possibly Friday night, early Saturday morning. It is reported that the film was screened for Roger, Al, and a few other people to see on Sunday, the 22nd. So a lot of people say you couldn't process Kodachrome film in that time. Now, in terms of physical time, from getting it to Northern California to Yakima, that's a few hours plane flight. Getting it to a lab in Seattle, if you fly, it's 45 minutes. If you drive, it's three hours. Running it through the machine, that's only one hour. And then you're done. So from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning, there is physically enough time to do it. The question hinges on the fact that the lab in Seattle, which did process Kodachrome, says they did not process Kodachrome Friday night or all day Saturday, and they didn't start the machines up again until Sunday night. So in theory, their machines were not running then. That's what they say. Now, being in the film business and having actually taken film to the lab and seen what labs can do and everything else like that, the simple reality is people will occasionally do something that according to their normal description or their normal operating hours, they say they won't do. They can do special orders. So all we need for that timeline to work is someone at that processing facility in Seattle to simply decide to break the rules, whether they were pressured to do so or whether they were offered a financial incentive they considered enough to justify doing it. All you simply need is somebody to break the rules. Now, a lot of people have trouble understanding this, but I mean, Look at the reality of people fixing parking tickets. Okay, it's illegal, but somehow some people get it done. Somebody's breaking the rules. Somebody paid them to do it or pressured them. To do it. And Diatley had deep pockets. So the whole thing about going to a high-class hotel and tipping the bellop to send a hooker up to your room. In theory, the hotel will swear that never happens in our hotel. But I'm sure the bellhops can tell you, no, we do it all the time, you know. Right. Just uh, give us a 50 and we'll send a lady up, you know. There are a lot of things in life where there's the theory of how it works and there's the under-the-table reality. And the people who are hooked up on a timeline, they keep clinging to the theory of, well, but the lab says it wasn't open then, so it couldn't be done. Well, the reality is, of course it could. Somebody just had to break the rules. So depending on, on how much you are aware of the reality of people breaking rules or not, you may see the timeline as possible or impossible. But it all hinges on the simple reality. Do you want the theory of how it works 
to be absolutely inviolate? Or do you want to kind of lighten up and say, oh, come on, in reality, you can get things done that people say can't be done. It just takes a little persuasion. That's all. Absolutely. So the timeline controversy really hinges on that, whether it's a strict interpretation of the people said these are the rules and nobody could break the rules or the reality that, yeah, somebody can break the rules either by pressure or by financial incentive, but people do it. Am I correct in understanding from your book that you actually worked with uh, Stuart Freeborn? No, never met him. Okay. Never talked to him, uh, wished and dreamed and hoped, but never had the opportunity. I did know Dick Smith, and of course Rick Baker was a friend back in the 70s. Met John Chambers, uh, knew Stan Winston's, a lot of the other people involved. But Stuart, no, I never got a chance to meet him, work with him or such, but I admire him immensely. Okay. I I thought I might have misinterpreted that, which is why I wanted to ask that. I know you're familiar with Long's book, but have you actually read Long's book? Not 100%. Okay. I've read a lot of it, though, yes. Did you read the chapter on, on Bob Hieronymus? Uh, yeah, definitely well, I th- read his. I thought that was something about the eye, the prosthetic eye that he says was left behind in the costume. The strangest thing I thought about that, and you may know more about this than I do, since you obviously have worked with prosthetics for costumes, I imagine. Well, aren't those things expensive, even back then? Yeah, they they weren't cheap. Good quality glass eye wasn't really cheap. Most of those glass eyes, though, were full round spheres. So you could put them actually into the eye socket where there is no real eye. There were occasionally ones made that were just a front crescent. And I have no idea how they fit inside. I don't know what was in the rest of the eye socket if those were used. So they don't distinguish in Bob's claim about which kind of glass eye he's talking about. If it's the full round ball and that was attached to the eye socket of the mask, that would push the whole mask further away from his face and it would have made it nearly impossible for his own eye to see out of the other eye opening uh, because if that opening of the eye is about the size of your own eye, if it's pressed against the eye, then fine, you can see the full scope of your normal peripheral vision. But if you pull this out an inch or so from your own eye, it's like you're looking out a little window and you're only seeing a small fraction of what your eye is capable of taking in. That would have blinded him even more and had him stumbling around, tripping over everything. Towards the end of your book, you had indicated some other things that you had wanted to do. And of course, unfortunately, now one of them escapes me. It might have been higher resolution scans of something, but it was based on getting additional funding. Have you, since the publication of your book, have you been able to conduct research that doesn't exist in the book? No, not yet. Still looking for it because I'm at a point now where almost any research that I see as being valuable is somewhat expensive. And without some kind of financial support, it just isn't going to happen. And uh, I've tried on several occasions to get a television documentary going that would explore this and would have the backing in order to do the research. There's still some talk it might happen, but it's, uh, it's been, we've been trying to get it going for a couple of years and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So I don't have a lot of confidence in that. Probably and most likely other business ventures of mine that might materialize might position me to finally go back and do that research. Here's one of the other things I wanted to ask about, and this is something that we can relate to because we've faced a little bit of it ourselves, but it seems like nothing compared to what you've gone through 
you talk a good deal in the book about the assault on your character. And it's an interesting thing to me from the skeptical side. You obviously went through a good deal. And I can only imagine, especially having most of your discussions in internet forums, which are viper pits in general. But it seems like a lot of people went after you and it's left an impression on you. And like I said, we've we've been through that as well, but not to the extent that you have. But one thing that it was common and interesting to me was your assessment of the what seems to be a lack of critical thinking with regard to skeptical counterpoints to your idea that the Patterson-Gimlin film is is 100% real. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and on what the skeptic battle has, has been like for you? Yeah. First of all, just as a general appraisal of the skeptical community, sadly, um, they have gone off on a detour around the Patterson film that absolutely blows their credential as what we like to call critical thinkers, which is odd because in many other subjects, their critical thinking is quite splendid. So why they've gone so far off the path with the Patterson film, I don't really have a concrete explanation for this. The best example is in this new book, Abominable Science, by Donald Prothero and Daniel Loxton. And in the first chapter, he spends quite a bit of time explaining why anecdotal evidence isn't any good. And everything he explains is just spot on. I I actually reference it myself because it's excellent. But then they go into the chapter dealing with the Patterson film and the other author, Daniel Loxton, basically apparently authored that one. And he goes after the Patterson film by trying to first say the film can't speak for itself, which means he's saying the best empirical evidence tells us nothing, which is a monumental mistake for someone to reject the empirical evidence only so that they can then try to make the anecdotal evidence seem wonderful by comparison. And I can't imagine how they made such an unbelievable mistake in pure logic and skeptical critical thinking. But then Loxton goes into comparing the Patterson film to an encounter by a man named William Rowe. Now, it's one of the more famous Bigfoot sightings. But all we have from that is that this man went out in the woods He saw a female Bigfoot creature, and he drew a figure of a female figure with large, noticeable breasts and hair over the whole body. Loxton compares the Patterson film to the Roe encounter, as if they're equal. But in the Roe encounter, it truly is nothing more than an anecdote. This person told a story. He drew one little drawing, and by his testimony, he says, this is what I saw. But it's an anecdote. It has no weight whatsoever scientifically, zero. The Patterson film, by comparison, is one of the most astonishing pieces of film evidence of an encounter with something strange, suspicious, or mysterious. It's one of the most spectacular bodies of physical evidence we have ever seen. There is no UFO footage. There is no other Bigfoot footage. There is no Loch Ness footage. There is no dinosaur in the Congo footage, there is no Mothman footage, there is no other footage of any kind that even comes close to the amount of empirical evidence in the Patterson film. Now this guy is comparing the greatest trove of empirical data 
with an anecdote and treating them like equals. How in God's name can anyone who understands critical thinking do that? It seems to me they're just so desperate to win the argument that winning is all that matters. And this is something sad. I mean, it's not just them or just skeptics in general. I mean, this is going on in the world right now. We see it all the time in Washington, D.C. with the current political climate. Winning is all that matters. Truth doesn't matter. Evidence doesn't matter. You know, none of that matters. Winning is all that matters. And it's just an, uh, something that's occurring in the world, not just with the skeptics versus Bigfoot proponents with the Patterson film. It's occurring everywhere, and it's a monumental tragedy, in my opinion. But that's what I see with the skeptical community. They want to win more so than they want to actually work with the true evidence. Because I've countless times I've tried to engage someone who claims identifies themselves as a skeptic. I have tried to engage them in a disciplined, logical analysis of the patterns in film, and they run away every time. Nobody will take that on. As far as I know, no one has ever published a single, thorough, logical, reasoned, authoritative, skeptical rebuke of what I laid out in the book. No one will meet me on my terms and debate the subject. It's a tragedy. It really is. We have a fairly good friend of the show who has his own show that takes us, uh, he's a more of a skeptical approach on monsters. And I imagine that he would, and he's very civil and a kind person, and that's why we're friends with him. And we've engaged with him, cross-engaged with him on topics we've covered in the past, and specifically about the nature of skepticism when it comes to this kind of stuff. He may be interested in talking to you. Would you be interested in possibly going on his show if we could put you in touch with him and having him debate? Very receptive idea, yes. Okay, great. You know, I'm going to let you go here in a bit. I can't thank you enough for all the time you've given us. There's a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, one of them is, is it fair to say that you went from not necessarily believing or even considering the idea of Bigfoot being a reality to 100% believing it based on your experience with the Patterson-Gimlin film? Actually, my outlook is a little more complex than that. Now, in the beginning, I didn't know if the Bigfoot entity, as we call it, was real or not. I was very open to the possibility, but there was no conclusion in my mind like, yes, it's absolutely real. And all the footprints that people are showing for most of the footprint casts I've seen, I could fake those without any without any difficulty. So I never I was never particularly impressed by that evidence of individual footprint casts because I could fake them, you know, without any problem at all. And I never really, for a long time with the Patterson film, I was just undecided. I really didn't commit myself to it until I finally got into a very serious, informative analysis of the whole thing. And I really honestly looked at the film and analyzed the film. But on the Bigfoot phenomenon in general, I'm still utterly and completely mystified. There are so many questions that skeptics like to raise, and they're very legitimate questions, like why can't anybody find a body? I think that's a wonderful question. I don't have an answer to it, but I think it's a wonderful question because we should have, with all the people looking, all the people searching, we should have by now been able to find a specimen if they are, in fact, a viable population of this species of primate. We should have been able to find one, either dead or alive, but we should have been able to find one. 
Second thing that mystifies me is that given how incredible a Patterson film is, somewhere in the last 50-odd years, somebody else should have been taking some kind of footage that was at least close to it. But there's nothing even close. Everything else is almost junk by comparison. A lot of the footprint stuff, I know a lot of the footprints out there that people show off, I know they're fake. Some of them I've looked at, because you know, every time I go to a Bigfoot convention or <laughs> meeting or whatever, there's always a room where they, the sellers are and they have the cast laid out on the table and they're offering for sale. And I've looked through those and half of the ones I see there, I have no doubt they're fake. So I know there's a lot of fake footprints out there. I know there's a lot of people faking stuff and faking encounters and faking films and such. I know all of that's going on, and I know it has to be very credibly and reliably accepted. But there are things going on that nothing can explain, and I don't have any explanation for it. There are stick structures out in the woods. I've seen them myself trying to say, well, yeah, humans made this. I just don't buy it. There are other incidents that people have described, encounters that really are astonishingly compelling. But I can't make sense of this phenomenon. On the one sense, the evidence I've seen, the encounters that I've seen described, some of which are not public, are very, very compelling that there's something out there. But why we can't find a body, why we can't find any DNA, why we can't find anything that would allow us to scientifically confirm they exist is utterly and completely mystifying to me. So in the larger phenomenon, I don't actually have an opinion. I don't know whether they're real or not. All I know is the one in the Patterson film is real. Now, maybe she's a one of a kind. You know, maybe she literally is some kind of bizarre human mutant. I don't know. She's real. But the rest of the phenomenon, I don't know. But we've come across not only with Bigfoot, but other paranormal and supernatural phenomenon is if you don't believe it, then it has to be. You know, the common prosaic answer. And in yeah. this case, if you can't extend your belief to believe that there is a an unknown primate out there, Bigfoot, then it has to be a guy in a costume. And if it is a guy in a costume, then with your expertise, then what would Roger would have had to have done to make that look as good as it did? Is it employing silicone or something, you know, whatever was available at the time? If you could, for our listeners, tell us what Roger would have had to have done, again, to achieve that effect. To achieve that effect, Roger would have had to put to shame the greatest geniuses of the makeup profession. <laughs> and I doubt it he could. Hmm. <laughs> but that's it. He would have yeah. had to look into the future and invent technology that didn't exist then, not just in fur cloth, but in resinous products that can simulate very soft tissue of the body. We call it flab. They brought it out in the 90s, and Rick Baker did an amazing body costume for Eddie Murphy in a film called Norbit, yeah. where he plays <laughs> a woman, in a, a fat woman in a costume, and she's wearing a bikini, and she goes to a water park. And it's just absolutely unbelievable. It is so realistic. But that resin that they used didn't come around until the 90s. Roger would have had to literally get in his time machine, go to the future, get his stretch fur cloth, get his flab resin 
from BJB Enterprises and bring him back to 67 to build his costume. Aside from the fact that Roger was no genius at makeup, I doubt very much if he had a time machine. Right. (laughs) Because there there are uh, two other aspects that I think are key with, let's say, the, um, the physicality of either a creature or a costume. And that is, one, the jiggle factors of the breasts and also the muscles that some seem to say or or seem to be rippling underneath either its skin or its fabric or of some kind right other than this flab how would he be able to get muscles like a calf muscle i see is very prominent and uh he would actually in 1980 i was bidding on a gorilla contract for the movie congo that michael crichton wrote they were going to adapt it to a film And I researched possible ways of simulating muscle movement. And one of the things that we researched is a material called ferrofluidics. It's liquid magnetized masses. And by running an electrical charge through it, this liquid mass will ball itself up like a muscle contracting. We actually explored ferrofluidics to create movable muscles for these gorilla costumes. And this is 1980, not even 1967. The bottom line is there was nothing in the technology that could have created any kind of real believable muscle movement in a costume in 1967. And the fur cloth wouldn't have even allowed it to move if you somehow engineered it. But all of the options, aside from the flab resins, we did explore ferrofluidics in 1980, and we didn't even find a way that we could make it workable, adaptable in a costume. And if we did, we still would have had trouble trying to put fur over it where the fur would allow the movement. Just can't be done. Can you give our listeners a broad overview of the conclusion you came to and why? My conclusion is very, very well documented and widely reported by people. It is my conclusion that this film is 100% authentic, that it truly was an unplanned, unexpected, and spontaneous encounter. And the subject figure that we see in the film is, without any shadow of a doubt, something biologically real exactly as it appears. It is not a human in a fur costume. That's my conclusion. Now, the conclusion is based entirely on the film itself, the good evidence, the truly empirical evidence. The elements of the conclusion are, first, as a filmmaker, everything about the way the filming event occurred, the segments, the camera starts and stops, the trigger slip, when Roger was filming, the terrain area, everything like that, everything about that as described by the film and the camera describes a spontaneous, unplanned, improvised, and rather hasty, sort of of out-of-control event. Nothing about it gives any indication of planning and deliberation and calm, willful intent. Most people don't realize that when you are filming something where you're in control of the production, there are certain ways that you behave, certain things that you do, certain activities that a filmmaker is involved with, and they're evident within the film. None of these things which would be evidence of a deliberate filming can be found, and I've searched high and mighty within the film for 
any possible evidence. One example, if you're going to film this deliberately, and even if you deliberately chose to have these six segments, a person who films deliberately would shoot each segment, stop, and then very carefully work out, okay, this is what we're going to do on number two. And we're going to do them all so it looks like they're continuous segments in the film. It's called camera cutting. You don't edit in the editing room. You actually edit starting and stopping your camera segment by segment. It's occasionally done in cinema verte style. Okay, so you could argue, yeah, that's what it was done. It was camera cutting and cinema verte style. But if you're doing that, every time you'd finish a segment, you would carefully plan out exactly what you want to accomplish in the next segment. So the moment you turn the camera on, everything's going perfectly, and then you turn it off, and that segment's perfect. And then you stop and you work out the next segment perfectly. Well, that's how you do it if you were camera cutting. The problem is, if you were doing that, that segment that takes on um, projection about a minute long would probably take you an hour, hour and a half to film with all these interruptions to plan each segment meticulously. Well, in that amount of time, shadows shift their position very noticeably. So if you look at the film and find in two different segments a shadow that's very conspicuous on a tree or on the ground or something like that, if you have the normal delay of this camera cutting and setting up each segment with planning, deliberation, and even 10, 15 minutes of time between shots, the shadows would have shifted from one segment to the next. Nobody would ever think about it in filming. No one would ever expect an analyst to find it. But an analyst, in fact, could find that if they have the film properly scanned today, they could find evidence of that that no one filming back in 67 would have ever imagined anybody would find. Well, I went through it to look at that, and there is no evidence of any time lapse other than a few seconds from one segment to another segment to another segment. So there was no evidence of deliberation. These are the kinds of things, there are a lot of other things that are specific technical things about how the film was done and everything, and you look at it from the standpoint, would a person do this in reality in a spontaneous event, or would a person do this with a deliberate filming? Every single one of these analysis factors reinforces a spontaneous, unplanned, sudden event. Absolutely nothing gives any support to a planned, deliberate production of a hoax. That's in the filmmaking. So everything of that adds up to real. Then we go to the subject figure herself that we call Patty. You look at every possible explanation for a suit or a costume, every aspect of the body and how it would be built as a costume and compare it to what we see. And in almost every single instance, we find on that real body in the Patterson film, things occurring on the body that simply you can't accomplish with a costume, period. And there's absolutely nothing in it that suggests that a costume was used. There's nothing that it would be evident of a costume as opposed to evidence of reality. So looking at all these things, this includes the shape and size of the head, the way the head, the neck, and the torso flow together. It has motion of the breast tissue. It has the skin shifting along the waist, going down to the hip, the thigh, down onto the leg. It involves the structure of the calf muscles in the leg, the evidence of the toes moving upward and shutting down when the person is stepping, the contours of the back. All of these individual elements of the body have been examined meticulously, and nothing about the evidence or the conclusions derived supports 
a human in a costume. Everything supports something biologically real as it appears. That's going to wrap up part five of our six-part series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. We'll be back next week with our conclusions and an interview with the legendary Bob Gimlin himself. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Sam Haney. Hi, I'm Glendel Casilla, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. What do I have to say? My name is N-E-A-L. And my last name is... Sasquatch. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.